Welcome to another episode of Collective Conversations, where it is our mission to tease out the stories that build better community in the multifamily space. I'm your host, Mike Brewer, and we have another amazing guest for today's episode, Donald Davidoff. Donald is the CEO of Reba Real Estate Business Analytics. Uh, he's also the president of D2 Demand Solutions, where he consults on key issues in pricing and revenue management, marketing and marketing analytics, and internal business processes and workflows. Donald, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Excellent. Donald, uh, we have known each other, I, I think, in earnest for a, a fair bit of time, but uh, I mm -hmm. think probably more specifically the last four to six years, plus minus, I think I met yeah. you at an NMHC conference uh, originally. Exactly. Yeah, I think yeah. you were a big part of our first 20 for 20 uh, white paper. And that was, uh, I think that was when you and I first got to really know each other. That's right. That's right. And here we are, five, four, uh, four installments later in the 2020. Yeah, <laughs> I think exactly. I just saw the latest one. Just came, just came out. Yep. Excellent. Well, Donald, I uh, I appreciate you showing up for today's episode. I uh, I want to dive right in. Um, there is always a story uh, behind how someone made their way into the multifamily space. So, uh, do you want to tell us yours? Yeah, sure. It's um, it's quite a eclectic journey. In fact, I, I still try to tell people that I'm an industry outsider, but after 22 years in the business, um, people tell me I can't claim I'm an outsider anymore. Um, but, you know, I was, I was trained as an engineer. I actually have an aeronautical, astronautical engineering degree from MIT. Um, my, my joke, uh, I went out of that into the Air Force. Um, you can see some of the, my aviation art behind me. I, I've always loved planes. Um, went into the Air Force, worked on guidance and control systems for ICBMs. And um, my joke there is, is I was a rocket engineer, not a rocket scientist. Um, a little bit of an arrogant joke, but what the hell, people usually laugh. Um, you know, I, I came out of the Air Force and went to work in the family business, which was retail travel, because my father at the time had just become president of the American Society of Travel Agents, um, and he was going to be gone two days out of three for the next two years. Um, interesting little fact, he worked with Doug Culkin and Doug's wife, Liz. So if you remember Doug Culkin, former head of NAA, my dad and Doug knew each other way back when. Anyway, oh, wow. small world. You know, small world. So for a number of years, I was in this weird situation where um, I had this engineering degree, but I was working retail travel, um, a consortium of travel agents. Um, but, it, but it was sort of strange. And, you know, if you remember back to the 90s, that's when the airlines abandoned travel agents, et cetera. So come from 1998, I got a wife, I got a kid, I got a second kid coming, and I'm sitting here going, I love the business, but the risk reward just doesn't make sense. So I networked through a senior executive at a cruise line um, to a company about to change its name to Talus Solutions down in Atlanta. It was a boutique pricing and revenue management company. And all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, when I interviewed for that position, it was the only time in my life I've ever interviewed for a job and gone, I don't know what I'm going to do if I don't get it. Because my, my engineering is very project management oriented. Guidance and control, if you think about it, right, you're, we're controlling demand through inflections of price. Believe it or not, mathematically, that's not that different than controlling a rocket through an inflection of a nozzle, okay? And travel's where all this stuff started, right? After the De Airline Deregulation Act of 1979. So all of a sudden it was like, what I thought was this bizarre dichotomy of these two lives came right together. Like, this is it. I was born to do this job. Oh my God, what am I gonna do if I don't get it? Fortunately, I got it, started working on a rental car system, worked on a Harris Entertainment, modifying our hotel system to, a, um, to, to bring in the gaming value. Those of you who remember Harris Entertainment and uh, 
the whole, um, you know, uh, total rewards card. So like they know more about what you're going to gamble than you know what you're going to gamble. So we brought that into the revenue management system. And then in, um, in early 99, um, this thing comes across uh, the email congratulating this guy, Tom Walker, uh, for uh, landing Security Capital Atlantic and Security Capital Pacific, about to be renamed Archstone, an opportunity assessment around could you build revenue management systems for apartments? Okay? Got it. And up until then, I had been working on this second version, this V2 of a rental car system, that the model was great, but the rest of the application, not so much. And I had um, really been uh, sort of frustrated, like, you know, if something goes wrong, I want to have to look in the mirror and say, well, you made the problem, Donald, you better fix it. Right. So I didn't want to be working on somebody else's system. So here was a chance to work on something new. Happened to be that Tom Walker's office was across the hall. Walked into his office. Hey, Tom, you probably don't know me. I'm Donald. Fairly new here. Been here about nine months. You know, just uh, sit across the, across the hall. You know, congratulations on getting this new deal. Yada, yada. OK. You know, hey, if you're looking for someone, I'd love to work on this. And he did the standard. OK, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. So I go back to my office. I kid you not, 60 seconds later, he walks in my office and goes, what the heck? Nobody else is saying anything. You're on the team. And that <laughs> one moment is why I'm sitting here with you. Okay. From there, from there came um, working with Archstone, eventually becoming the very first vice president of pricing revenue management in, in the industry. I won't bore you with the rest of the details or we'll see how they come out. But one of the other things that I, that, that was sort of meaningful and you and I have chatted about this in the past, you know, that moment, forget whatever it did for me or not. It, it, it's that sort of life lessons in the notion of, in, in the notion of captaining your own ship. And it actually made me remember a story when I was a summer camp kid. Um, I went to this camp for like nine years straight. And at the time I was a really good swimmer. And so the, um, the head counselor, who was also the head swimming counselor, made me one of the few 12 year olds that he ever let go on a whitewater canoe trip on the Delaware River. But because I was only 12 and he really didn't want to be responsible for me dying, he put me in his canoe, put me in the front, and he told me something at 12. And I don't know why the heck, maybe just because my mom said I was born six years old, why I knew it then, but I've held to it ever since. He said something to me that was, he meant for the moment, but was a life lesson, right? He said, here's the thing, Donald, whatever happens, don't stop paddling. You are the engine in the front. I'm the steering. If you hear me scream, if you hear me curse, if you see me fly out of the boat, you know, out of the canoe, don't stop paddling. Because as long as you're paddling and we're moving a little faster than the water, we have some control. Maybe not total control, but we have some control. The minute we're going slower than the water, water's going to take us wherever the hell we want. And I remember even at 12, 13 years old going, what a metaphor for life, right? Whatever's happening, just keep paddling. You can't guarantee you're not going to hit a rock, not going to capsize. But if you don't keep paddling, then the forces outside you are going to take over and you have no sense of your destiny. So, you know, I was paddling when I went and spoke to Tom Walker and volunteered. And I, I kid you not, you know, 25 years later, almost 24 years later, my life is completely different because of that one moment, that one decision. So that's my that's my story, how I got into rental housing. That uh, Thank you for sharing that story. I, th I think many times we we get on these podcasts or we get into conversations and we don't really share the sort of the underlying premise for one's, uh, you know, sort of vision in life or mission in life. And uh, that's awesome that you would share that. I think it, I think it's a stark reminder that even in the, you know, the downside of adversity, uh, there is mm -hmm. always 
a seed somewhere that you can find that'll sprout in right and to your point about uh, paddling if you just keep paddling it'll yeah. it'll inevitably well, work I, out. it's funny i have i have a colleague good friend um going through a, i won't even be specific because i don't want anybody to figure it out going through a tough situation and one of the comments i made to this individual i won't even say gender was you know you're you're feeling a lot of negative energy that's natural but it's still energy so what do you do with that negative energy Right. You can you can wallow in it and spiral down or ask yourself, how do I take this energy and go do something positive in this moment with that energy? And that's always every time I've been down in the dumps and we all are there at some point when I'm feeling that negative energy. It's like, OK, but it's still energy. How can I channel that energy into something positive? Otherwise, I'm just going to wallow in my own misery. And, so and right. My, my dad taught me something else that I've always uh, always kept in mind. He said, Donald, don't ever forget. 80% of the world doesn't care about your problems and the other 20% is glad you have them. <laughs> That's a fair remark. <laughs> very, very, very true. Yep. Is, I mean, in any adversity, you have your own agency. You, you keep your agency. You have the ability to choose. So yeah. Awesome. Thank, thank you very much for sharing that. So I think you told me that LRO, I'm going to segue a little bit here to LRO specifically, but it's uh, it's approaching its 23rd birthday or it's in its 23rd year. I know you just mentioned that here 25 years later, but why could you kind of just go back to see the origin story? I know you shared a little bit of that, but yeah, maybe unpack a little more specifically where it started, some of the, <laughs> the interesting things along the way sure. and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, sure. I mean, honestly, two people, one person in particular uh, through a second person are responsible for this. Okay. Scott Sellers, then CEO at Archstone, and Dan Amidro, who was the chief information officer. I always have to say that because CIO in our industry is ambiguous, right? Is it chief information officer or chief investment officer? Chief information officer. So Dan actually shared with me at a later date. Well, let me start. Scott had the vision. Scott at, at Archstone always said, I don't want to benchmark myself against the other great real estate companies. I want to benchmark myself against other great companies. And so he looked at companies like Marriott, American Airlines at the time. They may not be great today, but back in the 90s, they had kicked United's ass that decade. Um, even Hertz car rental, which, again, proof that just because you're good once doesn't mean you're going to survive. You know, Hertz will be around, but it went through bankruptcy. But Hertz was really good at the time. And one of the things he noticed was these guys have constrained supply. These guys have demand that comes in advance of actually consuming the product, right? For us, you get tours and leases before they move in. I wonder if one of the things that they rave about, this thing called revenue management, right, or in the early days, yield management, I wonder if that would work for us. So Scott Sellers had the vision, okay? Others didn't. I will tease my friends at Equity Residential. Their COO is gone now. I know your equity background. I still have somewhere in my files a report out from an uh, analyst from a NARI conference in like 2001 or two where Scott, I mean, where... Uh, Jerry, you remember Jerry, the COO back then, he was asked by somebody what he thought of Archstone's uh, endeavors in revenue management. And the exact quote was something to the effect of, it'll, you know, they can do whatever they want, but it'll never work. We're not hotels, right? Four, four or five years later, he wrote a four and a half million dollar check to us to use LRO. Um, so Scott Sellers deserves a ton of credit. And then Dan Amidro was really the executive who implemented it. And Dan had a, a background with, um, he had been at uh, American Airlines at first, then he had 17 years at Hyatt Hotels. 
in the technology side. And he was directly involved when Hyatt implemented revenue management in the early 90s in the hotel space. Um, he got recruited to be CIO of American Medical System, or American Medical Response, AMR, which is what moved him out to Denver. Found out he didn't really like it. And within a year, got recruited to Artstone. So AMR paid to move him and Artstone didn't have to. Um, but he had told me that Scott actually, one of the reasons um, Scott interviewed him and hired him was specifically because of the background he had in travel and hospitality and with some revenue management. So Dan knew the company that I had worked for, one of the two predecessor companies he had used at Hyatt. So he reached out, which is how that gentleman, Tom Walker, who was on the hospitality side, got involved in selling it. And then once it was sold, I, you heard the story of how I got on the team. I um, obviously impressed Dan through that process. And another sort of funny thing um, is uh, I, I still remember I had just decided, Talents had been bought by Manulogistics. I decided that company didn't have the culture I really wanted. And I literally the night before had told my wife, um, hey, honey, I promised we'd be at least three years in Atlanta before we move again. Well, we're coming up on three years and we're going to move again because I think I'm going to find another job before the end of the year. Literally the next day, Dan calls me networking. He swears to this day he was not doing the, hey, I'm, do you know anybody who's interested? Because really what I mean is, are you interested? He swears to this day that wasn't true. Um, but he was asking me uh, if I knew anybody. They had decided they needed a full-time VP. It just couldn't be a part-time job for Dan anymore. And so um, I started giving him some names and then I wanted to figure out like, was the pay reasonable? Like, is this even going to fit? I literally wasn't thinking about it because I was an engineer. I was a software guy. I wasn't a real estate guy. And I asked him what the package probably would be like so I could make sure I'm giving him the right stuff. And then when he was done with the package, I suddenly just blurted out, oh, I wonder if I would be interested. And Dan goes, well, I didn't say anything. You know, they had a non-solicit. I didn't say anything, but if you're interested, let's talk. And that's kind of how I got the job. But that start, it really was Scott and Dan, and then Chris Bruss. We're going to talk about Reba in a little bit, I'm sure. Chris Bruss, who's one of my partners at Reba, he was my customer for a while there. And that was really how it all started. You know, Chris was my customer. Then I switched sides of the table. He came as, you know, his, his, I'll say boss. I hate that word, right? I was his partner, right? We may have different titles, but we collaborated together. And that's really how it got started. We, we ran a test for six months. We expanded the test, made the decision to roll out. Uh, we had just acquired Chelsea Smith Residential, so then we rolled it out to the high-rise division. And um, I'm trying to remember, the second customer was Simpson Housing, and then in pretty short order, Mid America um, uh, Home Properties no longer around, and then Post Properties uh, as well with equity. You know, equity equity was the tipping point, right? The number one, the number one publicly traded company doesn't buy things from the number two. It just doesn't happen. Probably, probably will go to my grave with sort of the best business accomplishment was, holy crap, we partnered with the one guy bigger than us to really bring it to the market and, and make it ubiquitous. Um, one other little footnote, Yieldstar was founded by Jeffrey Roper. Who was Jeffrey Roper? He was another Talis guy. Um, I worked very closely with Jeffrey back in the day. In fact, we did many sales calls together. He was the salesperson and I was the technical support. And so, you know, both Yieldstar and LRO uh, trace back to uh, the Talis Solutions. To tell us, and then you, so you actually took you were you participated. So LRO at some point sold off or became commercialized beyond Archstone. It just kind of sold off as a business entity. Yeah. So that what happened? Well, yeah. What happened there is um, Talus got bought by Manulogistics. Archstone was a Manulogistics customer. Um, Manulogistics was going through some troubles um, around 2000. 
four-ish, I want to say. And um, they had decided to retrench um, because Manugistics was supply chain and they had bought Talus to get the revenue side. Their idea was, was both expense control on supply chain, revenue management pricing, top side, improve the margin. Okay, there was no supply chain play in rental housing. So they retrenched out of rental housing into only places where they could do both. We were all of a sudden in a position like, oh my God, we're stuck with Orphan Software. We're the only user. What are we going to do? Um, we negotiated, really Scott and Dan negotiated with, with Man Logistics. I helped, but they did the heavy lift. And we paid an extra million dollars to get redevelopment and resale rights. So we brought it in-house, got MidAmerica on board, had the conversations with equity, partnered with equity. And then in 2006, equity and we signed a three-way agreement. Don't ever do three-way agreements. Oh my God. It's the hardest negotiation in the world. But we signed a three-way agreement with Rainmaker, which is how it ended up with Rainmaker in July of 2006. They had a five-year runway to hit certain milestones, and then they had a balloon to take it over. We having, having been stuck with, this is a good lesson on technology, having been stuck with Orphan Software once almost, we were not going to let that happen again. So great to let Rainmaker take it over, but you got to prove to us you're going to make it work before we'll let you actually own the IP. So they had exclusive rights, but we still own the IP. Then in 2011, they executed the bubble, owned the IP, and then took it until they sold to RealPage. And uh, Bruce and Tammy are doing quite well, uh, <laughs> having sold to RealPage, and, and that's where it is today. So that's kind of the whole arc of LRO. I, I, I've always been fascinated. I've never heard that story quite the way you've, you've just told it. Uh, I've always been fascinated about the origins and how it came to be. I knew, obviously knew the Archstone piece and the equity piece because I was at equity when we rolled out LRO. So mm -hmm. uh, it always was. Well, you remember uh, Dave Romano, Dave. I, I, I recruited I, I recruited Dave. Jerry, Jerry basically said, we want to buy it, but we need a head of, uh, we need a head of revenue management. Okay, Archstone, if you want us to pay you, get us a head of revenue management. Oh, so yeah. I knew, so, yeah. I, I knew Dave when he was at Budget Rent-A-Car. Remember I said I started on Rent-A-Car? He mm -hmm. was one of my first clients when I was at Talos. So I knew Dave had, had quasi-retired and called him up and asked him if he wanted to uh, – he could keep his Jimmy John's franchise, but maybe he ought to get back to revenue management. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he said yes, and you know the guys at Equity loved him. And he only retired a year ago, I want to say, just over a year ago. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah, he was in the very early innings. He was part of our weekly pricing call with uh, a guy named Sang, S-A-N-G. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, or, was that or Bing? Remember Bing? Bing Lee? Or Bing maybe also. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Those were That's the right. days. That's right. Well, let's let's segue. Um, obviously, revenue management, um, sort of the underpinning of that is data, right? Mm -hmm. And you're making a segue or have been making a segue for uh, a couple of years now into something that you are titling REBA, which stands for Real Estate Business Analytics. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, my, I mean, real estate business analytics, right? Software startup, got about nine or 10 clients already. Um, two commercially available products. We have a, a BI platform as a service and we have a budget and forecasting, forecasting application. Uh, Brookfield Properties use the budget app. This past budget season, last fall, came back and told us they cut the man hours spent on budgeting in half. Um, we've got several people using the BI platform. Oh, yeah, no. Our, our, we're, we're thinking of a tagline. For free of a budget, we're thinking of a tagline, time to love your budget system. Something right. like that. Anyway. I think that fits. <laughs> on the BI side, um, 
you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I partnered with a couple of former Artstone colleagues. I've been doing BI for a long time. I mean, it's been a piece of my portfolio, right? The BI journey for me really started back in 2002, 2003, as we started to roll out LRO, it became really obvious to Chris Brust, you know, that former client, now colleague, um, became real obvious to, to him and to me that if you're going to run revenue management well, you can't just set and forget the software, right? You really got to manage the situation. You've got to collaborate with ops, like all that communication, things like the calls you were talking about. And if you're going to do that well, you really need to take data from two different systems of record, from the PMS and from the RMS, and get them into one single source of truth. And so Chris took on the effort in early 2003. He built the very first data mart at Archstone. And we used that data mart to uh, democratize pricing and operating data to the operators, to use as a meeting point, to discuss when things were working well, when things, you know, when things need to be changed. It, it was an, that, that data element was an absolute game changer. Uh, it was such a game changer that Chris got asked to do more and more with it. And by 2007, he had a uh, data warehouse with multiple departments. He got promoted out from under me to report directly to Dan Amidro, the CIO I mentioned earlier. So we- and just to define, a, If I could for one second, just to define data warehouse, that, that is basically a place where you, you <clears> create pipes that move data into one place. You called it a single source of truth. And that's where you could then pipe that data out to places. <laughs> exactly. So, okay. so, so, right, and, and pipe data from the different systems of record, from the transactional systems, yes. right? Okay. So from the property management system, from the revenue management system, from your surveys, from the tax system, from the construction system, the accounting system, like, you, you know, bring it all into one single source of truth. If you've ever experienced, and I know you have, and most of your listeners have, looking at like three different Excel reports that have four different occupancy numbers, you know exactly what not having a single source of truth does. If you have that data warehouse, that single source of truth, then every report uses the same occupancy definition, right? Uses the same availability, the same rent growth, the same, you know, pick things outside of operations into asset management, into HR, into all these other things. So yeah, that's what a data warehouse does. And so by, by 2012, when Archstone went away, right, we got, we got taken private by Lehman Brothers and, um, you know, and, and uh, Tishman Spire. Um, I still remember reading a couple years later in The Economist, a reference to that deal. We were the high water mark before the Great Recession. We were the last deal that actually closed as part of the Great Recession. Um, not an august place to be. Um, but, you know, they gave us a good offer. We, we had to be right to the shareholders at the time. Anyway, come 2012, Equity and Avalon Bay take out um, Archstone. I had left a year earlier. Chris and Lanny got asked by Avalon Bay, you know, basically Avalon Bay saying, I want me some of what Archstone has on the BI side. And so they didn't become employees, but they started this company called Reluminous, okay? And Reluminous focused on bespoke BI design and implementation for rental housing. So they, you know, Chris and I with Lanny on the tech side, database side, we'd done Archstone BI. The two of them did Avalon Bay. Our paths crossed. They did something on their own with Invitation Homes. Uh, together, we did Progress Residential and Irvine Apartments, et cetera. So fast forward to like 2019, between us, them, me, et cetera, six, seven different big bespoke BI implementations. By the way, 90% of the data model is the same, right? Rental housing is rental housing. And so the inspiration for Reba was, okay, nobody wants to be in Excel hell, but until then, the only two choices were I either spend literally 2 to $3 million or more 
and two to three years or more, ask any of the big guys, that's what they spent, or more, right? I have to do that. Or I'm stuck with some stuff that's off the shelf, but it's not truly a single source of truth. And I can't access it, you know, any way I want. I can't manipulate the uh, the dashboarding any way I want, et cetera. So the bespoke guys can do all that customization, but it's expensive and time consuming, et cetera. Why can't we take our data model that we already know, put it in an environment so each customer gets their own environment, right? Not multi-tenant. And now they can have a bespoke-like experience on a subscription basis. That was the motivation behind Relay. We wanted, like, as a consultant, I would work, and I, I won't name them because I'm not out to explicitly diss anybody, but, you know, I would work with some of the off-the-shelf BI, and I would get so frustrated, like, I want to pull this with that. And back at Earthstone, I could do that in 2006, and here I am in, you know, 2018, and I can't do that, okay? Um, I had a client who used a system I won't name to literally just pull the data together into one place. And then they would run multiple reports, export them into Excel and go back to VLOOKUP help. Right? So like, okay, I didn't have to do that. Stone, it's all in the warehouse. I should just be able to grab it in Excel and do it. That was our inspiration. Why can't everybody get the same quality that, that you know, Artstone, Avalon, anybody else has, but on a subscription basis, not having to own all that technical debt. And that's, that's what inspired us to start Reba. We started it just over two years ago. And, um, you know, I feel like the dog that caught the car, you know, now what? I can only imagine. So I'm, I'm going to ask, and otherwise, uh, the answer to this question is otherwise obvious, but I mm -hmm. just want to ask it just for unpacking sure. purposes. Um, so why is it important to bring all these sources of data into one data warehouse and then pipe it out? in a yeah. way that somebody can look at it. Why is that important? Yeah, the simple answer is to help your decentralized teams make better decisions faster, right? You can't be there to tell them what to look at and what to do. So how do you make better decisions faster? And I will tell you, I, I mean, for 10 plus years now, I've been struggling with how to get COOs and CEOs to really understand it and bring that to life. I mean, I can tell you, Every time I talk to a COO or a CEO who's never had good BI, they just see dollar signs on writing a check. It's really, really hard, okay? Even at the beginning, I mean, Dan Amidro, we were doing that first data mart. Suddenly, Dan realized it had been about three months had gone by, and he asked us, um, you know, we should probably have a meeting and see what you're doing. So Chris and I showed him everything we were doing. It was one of the few times I feared for my job. Dan was upset with me. He thought we gold-plated it. He thought we had done too much and told me as much. But it's too late. It was already done. By the way, another great saying, Admiral Rickover, um, it's always easier to beg for forgiveness than ask for permission. I'll be honest, if Dan ever watches this, I'll let him know. I kind of knew we were doing more than what he would want us to do, but I knew we needed it. Okay? So I leave that meeting where I can tell he's not happy with us, but there's nothing he can do. It's already done. He's not going to tell us to throw away the code. Okay? The next day, we get a request from Scott for an ad hoc analysis needed for a, an investor presentation the next day. Okay? In the old world, and if we had just built a little teeny thing, wouldn't have been able to do it, or it would have taken a week to pull data and figure it out. Instead, with this gold-plated, he thought, data mart, we were able to answer it in 10, 15 minutes. Okay? Oh, wow. I made a point. Hey, Dan, you realize what you were upset at yesterday? He's like, Look, yeah, I know. And we never, like, so that's the point, right? When you don't have it, all you see is the cost, and you don't realize the benefit. Every CEO, COO that hasn't had it, it's a struggle to get them to understand. Every CEO or COO I know who had good BI, because eventually by hook or by crook, it got there. Sure. 
and they left the company and went to another company that didn't have it, they feel like they're driving blind. And BI becomes their number one or number two initiative in the first year on the job. So I continue to struggle. I mean, you know, better decisions faster. You'll make more money. That's that's trade. It's hard to, like, how do I really understand the ROI? All I can say is, if anybody out there can help me articulate better uh, how to bring it to life, I'm all ears. I've been trying for 10 years. But everybody who doesn't have it worries. And everybody who's had it and then loses it because they change jobs to somebody who doesn't have it, it's their number one or two priority. I think that's the best testimony of all as to why it's so important. Yeah, definitely. I think well, I'll help you find a good copywriter, and I'm going to change the name of my uh, show here to Collective Confessions. So there you go. <laughs> now that you've confessed there you go. I like that. I like that. <laughs> well, hey, I, I appreciate you going into that a little more detail. I know the answer to that question is otherwise obvious, but I, I think for a lot of our listeners, a lot of our viewers, um, you know, you you see this sea of data coming in, and mm-hmm. to your point. So much data that, and and not all of that data is important, by the way, right? You In right. my head, you got to narrow that to the 10 to 12 things that really drive the business. And every now and then you're going to, you're going to do analysis that <laughs> yeah. makes sense in isolation, but for the most part, you're going to use that data to, to drive. Yeah. And that's, that's a good point. It makes me think of a couple of things also about like, what does good BI do for you? Well, yeah. for 98% of the people, it gives them published dashboards and reports that automatically direct them to what's important. Right? right. Like we have a scorecard, right. yellow, green, red scorecard. We have, you can right. drill in and see what's driving that yellow, red or green. Right. So if you, I mean, I always thought before I even really understood BI theory back in my early days at Arstone, I was like, if I can control the report content, I can control the behavior. Right. So I often yeah. did not try to change an operating team's behavior. I tried to work with the senior executive to change how we reported things. Because if we changed how we reported things, we could guide their behavior. And so BI is just doing that on steroids, right? The other piece of really good BI, that's the published dashboard, 98%. The other piece of really good BI, and this is where the existing off-the-shelf stuff I think falls short, is um, is that ad hoc, that ad hoc analysis that I just mentioned earlier, right? Most analysts, if, if you, Mike, and you're a data guy, if you ask one of your people a question that isn't answered directly by a current dashboard or report, they, if they're able to answer it and you go back and look what they did to answer it, you will see that 80 to 90% of their time was spent doing data collation, pulling data from multiple reports into Excel. If they're an Excel jock, they know how to do VLOOKUPs or if they're really an Excel jock, they, jock, they do index statements and things like that. And they do all this manual machination to finally get the result and in five minutes tell you what the answer is, right? But it was hours of collation, minutes of analysis. What a good BI platform does is it lets that expert tap directly into the warehouse, see it all in Excel at once. And now it's minutes of data collation slash setup and then immediate analysis. So what used to take hours or days takes minutes and you can just do so much more. That's the faster, better, faster. You create a, you know, I hate the buzzword flywheel, but it really does become a flywheel, right? Better, faster, better, faster, keeps accelerating. That's what good BI does. That's it. Yeah. When inertia kicks in, it, uh, it yields an amazing outcomes over time. <laughs> well, and when you stop arguing over what occupancy is, right? Everybody yeah, has one number, one number. I, I'm yeah. laughing because recently in our organization, we talked about the idea of, of it, it, really the conversation was about loss to lease, but we were having a conversation and you wrote a, you wrote a blog post. Yeah, don't get me started on loss to lease. Well, we'll spend no, another half an hour on loss to lease. <laughs> We'll do another episode and we'll talk about lost to lease. There you go. Just lost to lease. I mean, 
I made the mistake of calling market rent an arbitrary number, and that sort of like fueled this. Oh, it is arbitrary. You're on. You're, yeah, I'm, I'm on your side. But again, unless you want to go another thirty minutes. <clears throat> nope, definitely. Yeah, we won't do that. I, I do have a question. Sort of maybe it's looking around the bin, or maybe not so much looking around the bin, but looking at future iterations of of a tool like Reba. Mm-hmm. Um, my my imagination tells me that once you have this pool of data you can let loose uh, sort of machine learning or AI, however you might define those two terms in that big pool of data. And at some point you get predictive analytics or you have the ability exactly. to get predictive analytics in place. Is that, is that the right way? Yeah, to oh, absolutely. In fact, there's a maturity chart that I've used in presentations before where you like, you go from reporting to dashboarding. Uh, I'm sorry, reporting to online analytics to dashboarding and predictive analytics is the fourth and most sophisticated maturation phase of BI. In fact, the industry has been doing predictive analytics for over 20 years, right? LRO and Yieldstar are predictive analytics. They were just highly specialized, right? And they had their own little data mart. They had to pull data in in order to manipulate it. So we've been doing predictive analytics. We can do a lot more. And you're absolutely right. I mean, like one of the first things we did, we got a really cool dashboard I love um, around the marketing funnel, where a marketing person or an operator can like manipulate conversion ratios and based on all the data that's already there, it'll tell you over whatever timeline you pick, how many incremental leads you need compared to what you've traditionally gotten, right? So now I can start to do what if analysis, right? So that's kind of interactive what ifs. And then the next step would be, okay, build an app on top of it that actually tells you, hey, you're in great shape or, hey, you better pay attention uh, you know, to your marketing because the goals you set, you're not going to reach unless you change something. So absolutely, you know, this industry, I mean, I love predictive analytics. It's been my career. Um, but wow, if we can just get the dashboarding done first, then it's amazing how people's creativity will ask for and create additional applications on top of it. And that's exactly where predictive analytics will come in. Do, do you think it's too far reaching to think that one day, I, I'm thinking about this as the next step of predictive analytics or the next iteration would be, it could actually go out and make the right ad buy automatically. Oh, yes. So, yeah, you can I mean, there, there, are spe- there are specialized software programs that do that already um, in, the, you know, in the Google Buy space. Um, where, where I thought you were going, like if you really want to take this crazy, crazy, is there a day that the computer could run a property? And the answer is no, because, because not only is there a human element needed, but yeah. we, you know, we don't have big data in this. Ind- big data is terabytes and petabytes, right? We have megabytes and gigabytes. Okay. Right. Right. So the error band around any predictive analytic application still means that there, you know, maybe for 60, 70, 80% of decisions, they could become more automated, but there's always going to be 20, 30, 40% that the error band is just too big because we're small data and we're human to human. And so that's where a human is going to be involved. But here's what I do believe is possible, right? You know, uh, again, I go back to my operating days at Archstone, that name keeps coming up. You know, what, what do we have? Probably average about eight properties per regional. What if a regional could handle 12 instead of eight, right? Ugh, right? Don't... What if they could do That's 10 right. instead of eight even, right? I mean, so I do think that technology can have a payoff in making people more efficient, more productive, right? Get them focused on the places where humans need it. Because every time an operator looks at a report in order to say everything's fine, I don't have to do anything, it's a waste of time, Right. Why don't, why don't we have a better alerting system to point them to where the problems or questions are and the stuff that's running fine, they don't even have to pay attention to. 
And then maybe somebody instead of eight can handle nine or 10 or even 12 properties. And that's where you can get a, a staffing payoff uh, from BI. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. I like to dream a little bit from time to time. So sure. Uh, so let's uh, let's kind of we're getting to about a forty minute mark here. Maybe kind of drawing to a close. I know that you you mentioned this at the beginning. You have this sort of inter, I'm going to call it entertainment background. Sort of a I think you used the word before we hit the record button. Poetic. Uh, yes. Can you kind of sort of in cap? Let's talk about the in cap for. Donald Davidoff's career, yeah. which has been quite rich. Uh, and thank you for sharing a lot of that with us. So maybe- No, my pleasure. I was, yeah, I mean, I was late to rental housing. It took me, I guess I was a late bloomer. It took me a little while to find it, right? I only started working in the industry at 33 years old. Um, you know, I, I, to your point, I, I do some things on the side, helping entertain. I'm not an entertainer myself. I'm not a musician. You do not want me to sing, but I have presented, you know, I've presented 300 plus concerts in my career. Um, you know, I've, I've given- uh, I've given management support to some indie singer songwriters and bands and things like that. I actually, believe it or not, here's a little tidbit. If it was two truths and a lie, you would swear this was a lie. I am a member of the Iowa state rock and roll hall of fame. I really am. Awesome. I, I, I manage I managed a band called the Nadas out of Des Moines. And when they were inducted, I, I got my little plaque. Um, my daughters are completely unimpressed. They're completely unimpressed. I got a, I got a certificate in the mail from the, from the governor of Iowa congratulating me and my girls went, oh, but that's just because it's the Nadas. They're just friends of yours. Like, no, I really did manage them. Anyway, so I do have this entertainment stuff on the side. So, you know, I am a businessman. I am an engineer, but I do have this sort of affinity for sort of poetry and music. And, and yeah, what I was sharing with you uh, uh, somewhere at some point in time is the other thing I love about Reba personally, right? I won't speak for my partners, but for me personally, it's kind of a potential poetic bookend, right? I feel like my team and I, came into the rental housing industry, changing how we do pricing. I mean, fundamentally changing. Nobody does pricing, or at least nobody in the NWC top 50, probably even top 100, does pricing the way they did in 1999. So we changed that. It feels like a poetic bookend. I would love whenever Reba gets to its, you know, sort of full penetration to have catalyzed changing how the industry uses data. In fact, you know, on our website and elsewhere, you know, we say Reba is on a mission to change how rental housing uses data. And I just think that'd be a great, great bookend to what has been an incredibly blessed career. Um, you know, chance to do a lot of exciting things and meet a lot of interesting and friendly people. Yourself certainly near the top of that list. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for continuing to paddle in the industry. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Just keep paddling. Sir, keep paddling. Just I, keep I love paddling. that lesson I love that lesson. I'm going to borrow that story. But uh, uh, is there anything you want to leave our viewers, our listeners with? Uh, it's sort of a end cap piece of wisdom uh, before we uh, sign off here. Oh, God. End cap piece of wisdom. That's putting me on the spot. Um, I know. I know. You know, I, I would I would just say, I mean, in, in, the, in the spirit of what um, we're doing at Reba, I my, the best things that I have ever done in my career from when I was a wing commander in my ROTC unit senior year to at the travel agency or in the travel agency consortium business to my time at Talos, my time at Archstone and, and, and now elsewhere, um, you know, it, it is figure out a way to enable other people to bring their creativity to bear, right? I mean, I, I, I am a bit of a control freak as anybody who works with you or works with me would tell you, I have very high standards. 
And I constantly battle that. And I remember in my early 20s, sort of just doing the math. If it has to be done my way, then I can only do 100% of my time. If I can figure out how to accept somebody else, maybe they only do it 90% as well. But five people doing it 90% as well is 450% against my 100%, right? So let people, let people do stuff. And my, the biggest successes usually came from a subordinate taking some problem statement I helped them understand and solving in a way that I never would have solved it. And I'm going, well, okay, that's why, that's why they're here. They're better at that than I am. And that doesn't, that doesn't challenge me. I've had bosses who are challenged by subordinates who do something good or are smarter than they are. That doesn't challenge me. That like, that feeds me. And the reason I'll, I say that with respect to what we're doing now is if you implement a good BI platform, it does truly democratize the data. And it is amazing if you let, you know, like, like IT has this history of trying to control the data. No, data should flow like water. Get it out there. This industry, you know, the vendors, the PMS players, stop putting toll booths and road close signs on the data. If the data will flow, you might lose a little control today, but the pie is going to grow. We're all going to make more money. We're all going to do better. Letting the data flow, democratizing the data, turn loose the creativity of your people by making it easy for them to access the data. And you'll be amazed at what can happen. I love it. I love it. Donald, thank you. I appreciate all the time you dedicated to this podcast. Uh, I look thank forward you. to publishing it a couple of weeks from now, but uh, appreciate it. Appreciate you. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Likewise. Thank you.